Good morning, everybody. It's a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning for worship. I appreciate uh, how wonderfully you have welcomed me, and especially how warmly you've welcomed both my parents uh, and, and my mom into this wonderful ministry. And uh, even though I wish, wish my mom were here, it is, it is wonderful to be here with uh, Annie Franklin Arvin and to see what an excellent minister she has blossomed into, and, and just gratitude for the ways in which you have, have welcomed Thomas and her into your lives and homes. Uh, good to see everybody for worship this morning. I suspect some of you were up late watching college basketball like me, so glad we're all here. The New Testament lesson comes from John's Gospel This is in the closing days of Jesus' public ministry. He has gone back to dine at the house of Lazarus again. This is the Lazarus who he has just raised from the dead a few chapters earlier. I'm reading for chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I am a nostalgic fellow. My son Charlie is here today. He turns 18 in a few days, and every year about this time, I bring up his Scooby-Doo birthday party when he was six, his archery party when he was nine, and all the wonderfully silly things he's done over the years. Like many of you, I'm sappy and nostalgic about the Golden Isles. As a child, we came down here every year with my dad's whole side of the family, and we stayed on Jekyll during the 70s and 80s. In 1976, we had the Jekyll Olympics, where we did running and biking and swimming all week the same time the Olympics were going on. The first time I saw fireworks was over the St. Simon's Pier. My grandfather, a World War II veteran who fought in Europe, dressed up as George Washington, and my grandmother as Martha Washington in 76, and we walked all over the beaches at Jekyll and SSI handing out lollipops in the heat of July. This nostalgia extends to sports especially Georgia sports, and I know the same is true for many of you. As a small child, I remember watching the end of Hank Aaron's amazing career in person, sitting in left field to watch Phil Necro pitch against his brother Joe, Dale Murphy going the opposite way to hit all those home runs. 
My then future and current wonderful wife, Helen, and I started dating in the early 90s, and I remember sitting with her in the hot Georgia sun to watch Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz strike out the best hitters in the world. These incredible memories made the recent world championship so much more special. I know many of you still have Larry Munson's gravelly voice running around in your head, announcing Lindsey Scott's historic run against Florida. Run, Lindsey, run! Helping the dogs to the national championship in 1980. Social media can be a vehicle for these turns down memory lane. There are Facebook groups and Twitter feeds that allow us to revel in the iconic television shows of decades past. The restaurants we loved to frequent, the schools we attended, even pictures from those old Sears and Roebuck catalogs of what we wanted Santa to bring us. The giant Christmas tree at the Riches in downtown Atlanta, the St. Simon's Pier in the 60s, it's all there for you to peruse and remember. Yet I wonder if such nostalgia has downsides and pitfalls. Is there a risk in overdoing memory lane? We can be susceptible to idealizing the past, glossing over things that were unseemly, divisive, or just plain wrong. It's easy to fall into cliches and tie the past up with a bow. I wince whenever I hear someone say, everyone had manners back when I was younger and now nobody does. Best as I can tell from watching my kids' generation, there are plenty of amazing young people today who are kind and respectful. And there were plenty of jerks when I was a kid. We have a tendency, especially as we get older, to minimize the unsavory elements in our past and assume that what has happened is always better than what's coming. I often use the expression, good old days, when I'm in a nostalgic mood, and one of my favorite songs is by Billy Joel called Keeping the Faith, as he reminisces about his youthful years in New Jersey, his amazing friends, and his teenage antics. But then in the chorus... Joel reminds himself not to idealize the past or assume that the present and the future don't hold great potential for joy and blessings. You can get just so much from a good thing. You can linger too long in your dreams. Say goodbye to the oldies but goodies because the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. I love that line. Because the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. This is tailor-made for nostalgic folks like me to remind us to live in the present, prepare for the future, and expect the unexpected. Amazing and surprising blessings might be just around the corner. In our Old Testament lesson from the book of Isaiah, this is a complicated biblical book written over several hundred years, and it covers many key historical moments. The passage for, for this morning reflects a time in which God's chosen people have been in exile in Babylon. And in the 6th century BCE, political and military developments have occurred such that they're going to be able to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the sacred temple, and reconstitute themselves as a community. The Persian Empire was on the rise, and the Babylonians were, fa- were fading We can refer to Isaiah 43, 16 to 21 as a salvation oracle describing what God is going to do to intervene on behalf of God's chosen people. Now, I'm a biblical scholar, which means I like to nerd out about the language here. 
Note the active language in this text about God, and I would quibble with the translation there. The NRSV translates it as the one who makes, not made a way in the sea. There's a declaration in verse 21, I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Verse 21. These are active participles in Hebrew which describe the ceaseless, miraculous work of God. To stick with the grammar for a minute, if you'll indulge me, a finite verb expresses a complete action. I walked to the village yesterday for ice cream. A participle conveys ongoing action, something that is still in process. I am teaching my daughter to read. In Isaiah 43, these participles are significant because they highlight the work of the creator God who acts within history, the God who brings out chariot and horse, not who brought out chariot and horse, the God who is about to do a new thing, not who did a new thing. The repeated use of the participle shows that the deliverance from Babylon that is now possible and the future glory that awaits the returning exiles is something happening in the present, earlier Glory is being replicated for the chosen people during this precarious time. The most difficult phrase in the Old Testament lesson is the command to the people in verse 18, don't remember the former things or consider the things of old. Is the prophet actually suggesting to the people that they should forget God's earlier acts? This would seem odd because Isaiah is full of God's previous deeds being highlighted. What he seems to be saying is that the people should not assume that God has abandoned them forever. God will save them in the present to return to the line from Billy Joel. The good old days weren't always good, but tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. The prophet we call second Isaiah is saying that the Lord is offering a fresh beginning and acting with new energy, I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. The prophet doesn't want his believers to forget God's earlier acts. Uh, God's deliverance of the Israelites through the Exodus, their wanderings in the wilderness were important foundational events. But Isaiah doesn't want them to think that God's incredible activity is confined to the past. Just as the Israelites were rescued from Egypt hundreds of years earlier, the prophet urges the people to be courageous in envisioning a new passage from Babylon, a new exodus. I'm about to do a new thing. My favorite line from any hymn is the last line of the last verse of morning has broken. Mine is the sunlight, mine is the morning, born of the one light Eden saw play, Praise with elation, praise every morning, God's recreation of the new day. God's deeds are not confined to Genesis and what happened at the dawn of time. God's salvific activity was and is not limited to bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. God is engaged in a majestic, miraculous process of creation and renewal every single day we are here. The God who made a dry crossing in the midst of a raging sea can also turn the arid desert into a well-watered pathway for all of us. As we are told in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament pro proclaims His handiwork. When you sit on the pier on Easter morning at the sunrise service, you are witnessing God's recreation of the new day. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do, do you not perceive it? Expect the unexpected.
when God is at work. In so many respects, this is what Jesus' public ministry is trying to convey. The people who seem to be most powerful are not the most important in the kingdom of God. Being kind to the poor matters more than your theological or political beliefs. Children and the elderly deserve our special attention. The people we see as outsiders or foreigners like the Good Samaritan are usually the ones who exhibit God's will for the world. The New Testament lesson from John presents us with an unexpected twist. Jesus returns to Lazarus' house for dinner, and Mary of the Mary and Martha duo comes to wash his feet. When Judas objects that the perfume she's using could be sold for charitable purposes, Jesus raises up his hand and tells Judas to quit his protesting. The plot is already afoot to trap Jesus, arrest and execute him. Jesus realizes that his time on earth is limited, and when Mary comes to honor him, there are only a few days left. This anointing by Mary recalls Jesus being baptized by John. It's kind of a capstone to his ministry. As theologian George Straup explains, Jesus has already been anointed for his costly mission in his baptism by John, and now Mary anoints Jesus for his costly death with her pound of costly perfume. Like John, Mary is a witness and a disciple, not by what she says, but by what she does. John baptizes Jesus for his earthly ministry. Mary anoints Jesus for these last days leading to his death. Notice that Mary doesn't say anything, but she demonstrates faithfulness to Jesus by her actions, and Jesus expresses gratitude for her display of generosity and respect. She anoints him for this final journey to the cross. There's remarkable abundance in the Gospel of John. Jesus produces miraculous amounts of wine during the wedding at Cana. He feeds thousands of people with a small amount of food, and he turns a seemingly empty fishing trip with Simon Peter into a bonanza. The generosity of Mary is in the same spirit, and it's unexpected. The conventional response would be for Jesus to tell Mary to put away the perfume and sell it, as Judas is asking, but instead he welcomes this stunning act of reverence and respect. Now a word of caution about this passage and Jesus' statement that you will always have the poor with you in John 12. It's remarkable that some have taken this comment by Jesus to indicate that we should just accept the reality of poverty and not seek to make things better. It's remarkable and it's wrong. Jesus leans on two biblical books above all others in his sayings and in his speeches, Isaiah, from which we just read in the book of Deuteronomy, the vision in Deuteronomy is built on trying to alleviate poverty in the world. Jesus, in this very statement, is alluding to Deuteronomy 15.11. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. The Old Testament and the Gospels require us to do everything we can to eliminate poverty. On the way down here yesterday, I looked up the latest stats. The poverty rate in my city of Richmond is 25%. In Brunswick, it is 35%. More than one out of four in Richmond and one out of three in Brunswick with a median household income in Brunswick right now of $28,000. Open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Maybe Jesus is suggesting to those gathered at Lazarus' house that they should tend to the poor and 
pay special attention to those friends in stressful circumstances and at the end of their lives. When we have loved ones who are in the twilight of their earthly days, we can do everything we can to celebrate them as much as we and they are able to celebrate all the wonderful people Annie was just mentioning. The amazing cruise taken with someone dealing with cancer, the splurge anniversary party for the grandparents that honors their many decades, the night out at a great restaurant to celebrate a co-worker. All these things have their wonderful place. Just as Jesus was grateful to Mary for celebrating his presence at Lazarus' house through the costly perfume, we can celebrate those near and dear to us who are worthy of celebration. And this need not occur at the expense of the poor. Both scripture passages this morning have surprising messages, pointing us more towards the future and the present than the past. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God is always capable of intervening on our behalf. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? We can remember the past. We can celebrate it, be grateful for all we've experienced, while also acknowledging that God is acting right now, making a way for each of us. Jesus also challenges our assumption and surprises us. He's grateful to Mary. And rather than scolding her for being too careless with expensive perfume, he scolds Judas for being so corrupt and hypocritical. It can be hard for many of us to expect the unexpected. We often plan everything out so that we will avoid surprises. Insurance policies, staring at our GPS making to-do lists. We tend to plan most things. But do not our greatest experiences often occur at unexpected moments in unexpected places? Think about the way you met your spouse, discovered a vocation that provided meaning to your life, struck up an unlikely friendship. When I was a sophomore at Davidson College, I was a history major, and I really wanted to take this, this popular course called Modern American Thought and Culture with a professor named David Shy. And this was the last semester he was going to teach it. He was headed to go be president of Furman University the next year. And it was oversubscribed. And there were no classes at all to take except for one, uh, which had plenty of spaces. And that was a history of India. And I thought, why in the world would I want to take this? But I need it for my major, so I walked in. The professor is a gentleman named Job Thomas. He ended up being my advisor. I spent a semester in India the next year. I ended up going to teach for a year at a Christian college that caters to low-caste Christians in India in the 90s. I regularly, regularly every other year when COVID's not going on, I lead groups of seminary students and alums to India where we meet with seminary students and professors and set up church partnerships. I learned what it's like to be a Christian in a minority context. I learned not to be afraid of or judgmental of friends from other faith traditions, but be in dialogue with them. I learned to celebrate cultural difference rather than criticize it, and I learned to love Indian food. None of this would have happened if I'd gotten that class on modern American thought and culture. During this season of Lent, And throughout our lives, we can expect the unexpected. Jesus' ministry and message are not modeled on predictability, but service. 
And sometimes that service includes lavish acts of generosity, as in Mary's actions in the Gospel of John. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God is always at work every day. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Don't you perceive it? The good days may indeed have been great. And I'm going to keep remembering mine, and I hope you keep remembering yours. But during this season of reflection, we can also remember that God is always at work. Unexpected things are going to happen in our lives, and God's plans are bigger, brighter, and more unpredictable than anything we could possibly imagine. Thanks be to God. Amen.